Welcome to NGA Notable Lectures, a podcast offering a deeper understanding of all things artistic. The Tuscan sculptor Francesco Mocchi, 1580-1654, has long been viewed as an early innovator of the Baroque style, whose career was eclipsed by his brilliant younger contemporary, John Lorenzo Bernini. But for his 17th-century biographer, what distinguished Mocchi's sculpture was his determination to adhere to the Florentine manner. Estelle Lingo's new book, Mocchi's Edge and Bernini's Baroque, argues that the religious and political climate of the later 16th century posed specific challenges for the medium of sculpture, particularly as it had been practiced by Florentine sculptors, most famously Michelangelo. In this lecture, held on April 29, 2018, Lingo explores how Mochi's distinctive sculptural style emerged directly from his attempt to carry forward the 16th century Florentine tradition and to adapt it to the exigencies of a new era. Mochi's ambitious undertaking produced some of the century's most breathtaking and technically sophisticated sculptures, but its inherent tensions also offer new ways of understanding the formation and rise to dominance of Bernini's mature sculptural style. This statue of the Angel of the Annunciation was carved from a single 9,000-pound block of Carrara marble. It is not, as one might assume from its complex shape, made of multiple pieces of marble held together by internal metal pins, though the angel did originally hold a long-stemmed bronze lily in his right hand. Marble is extremely heavy and has a much lower tensile strength than bronze. So when planning a statue, the downward thrust of any feature that is extended into space must be calculated precisely and successfully directed into a support to ensure the work's static equilibrium. If these calculations aren't made correctly, the results are potentially catastrophic, as the statue as a whole may prove unstable, or elements may crack or detach as happened in the case of the 16th century sculptor Baccio Bandinelli's Hercules and Cacus in Florence, from which a piece of marble fell during a ducal ceremony in 1544 and killed a spectator below. In this respect, the Angel of the Annunciation is exceptionally daring, as the lowest part of the block has been carved into a narrow arc of whirling cloud, with both arms, the front knee, the back leg, and the dramatically elevated drapery all extending well beyond this support. When viewed from certain angles, the lean of the figure is nothing short of alarming. The carving is extraordinary in other respects as well. The angel's flying draperies are carved so thin that light shines through them, an effect achieved by the sculptor's painstaking working of the stone with the chisel and repeated blows of the mallet. Undercutting the marble to this degree exponentially increases the risk that the next strike of the mallet will crack or break through the stone. This angel, who appears to be descending from the air above, finds no precedence among earlier marble sculptures and is indeed the type of composition one might only expect in painting. In 1603, the superintendents of the Cathedral of Orvieto with some hesitation, commissioned this angel from an unknown 23-year-old sculptor named Francesco Mocchi, who was promoted to them by a member of the powerful Farnese family. 
The Angel of the Annunciation was Moki's first major commission and is his earliest known work, though he would go on to a career in which he created statues of the Virgin of the Annunciation and two more apostles for Orvieto Cathedral, a number of saints and portrait busts for churches in Rome, two over-life-size bronze equestrian monuments to the Farnese in Piacenza, which very unusually he cast himself, and his astonishing colossal Saint Veronica in the crossing of Saint Peter's. Born in 1580 in the town of Montevarchi near Florence and dying in Rome in 1654, Mochi was clearly a sculptor of exceptional ambition and ability, and one with a colossal work still visible at the center of a site as prominent as St. Peter's. Why have even many art historians never heard of him? Answering this question can teach us a great deal about the work of art history and the power of its framing narratives to shape what we see. In his foundational account of the development of 17th century Italian sculpture, first published in 1958, Rudolf Wittkover described Mochi's early works, such as The Angel, as, quote, a fanfare raising sculpture from its slumber, heralding the arrival of the Baroque style amidst what Wittkover characterized as the tired formulas of late 16th century sculpture. But as Moki's career unfolded, Wittkover wrote, his innovations were overshadowed by his younger contemporary, Gian Lorenzo Bernini. And in later works, such as Moki's unfinished Baptism of Christ, the frustrated older sculptor, quote, renounced everything he had stood for and returned to a severe form of mannerism, end quote. Mannerism is the stylistic term often applied to later 16th century sculpture. Wittgover summed up his brief account of Moki's career, quote, always alone among his contemporaries, first the sole voice of uninhibited progress, then the sole prophet of bleak despair. He was utterly out of tune with his time. His Baroque works antedate those of the young Bernini, whose superiority he refused to acknowledge, and it was this that broke him, end quote. This characterization of Moki's historical position has had an influence disproportionate to its brevity, for nearly all subsequent scholarship on the sculptor has followed a version of this account. It is an indisputable historical reality that Gian Lorenzo Bernini, who was 18 years younger than Moki, developed a sculptural style that would shape to an unprecedented degree the subsequent development of sculpture in Italy and the wider Catholic world. The broad-based success of Bernini's mature style, however, was matched by an equally broad-based reaction against his art that gathered momentum in the 18th century and lasted well into the 20th. In the first half of the 20th century, Wittkover, to whom all scholars of 17th century art are immensely indebted, battled this still virulent critical bias to pioneer the art historical study of Bernini and Italian Baroque art more generally. In 1955, he published a monograph on Bernini, and three years later, his survey of Italian art and architecture from 1600 to 1750. Both books were reissued in multiple editions and remain in print today. 
Wittgover's task then was necessarily one of rehabilitation, and for the time in which he worked, his narration of Bernini's rise as a prodigy against the backdrop of a mediocre field of sculptural practice served his rhetorical purposes well. But it does scant justice to Wittkover's achievement or to Bernini's that more than half a century later, this narrative remains largely unchanged. Within this historiography of Baroque sculpture structured around Bernini, larger historical questions have tended to collapse into the individual and biographical, often obfuscating deeper inquiry. Thus, in Wittkover's telling, the distinct differences between Bernini's sculpture and Moki's later works are understood as Moki's refusal of art history's narrative of stylistic development and explained by Moki's presumed frustration at Bernini's success. Wittkover's analysis of Moki's art also takes the centrality of Bernini's art as self-evident. But during the first four decades of the 17th century, most of Moki's career, the emergence of Bernini's mature style was anything but self-evident. This style, in fact, transgressed wild, widely held period beliefs about the foundations of art. And the question of how and why it took shape and came to dominate sculpture in the Catholic world in the century following Moki's death is perhaps the most pressing historical question regarding sculpture in this period. It is a question that has remained largely unarticulated in Bernini studies. Moki's sculptures, my book argues, have a great deal to teach us about the formation of Bernini's mature style of religious sculpture and the historical bases of its success. My decision to devote a book to Moki, however, was not initially inspired by historiographic reflections, but by Marcello Bertoni and Carlo Del Bravo's photographic essay on the sculptor, published in 1981 in commemoration of the 400th anniversary of his birth. Bertoni's black and white photographs captured the highly distinctive character of Moki's sculptural language and made it clear that the available art historical accounts of Moki's art had scarcely begun to probe the depth of visual evidence the works presented. Moki's statues became for me questions that demanded an answer symptoms that required diagnosis. For my book, I undertook a campaign of new photography in which I sought to recreate the sensibility of Bertoni's images while bringing them and Moki's art into our moment through the new visual possibilities offered by digital color photography. Moki's art and career were considered by just one 17th century biographer, the sculptor's younger contemporary, Giovanni Battista Passeri. Passeri opened his biography with a reflection upon how love for a native region inevitably shaped one's culture and preferences and blinded one to that culture's limitations. I say this in relation to Francesco Moki, Passeri continued, who was born in the state of Florence and always wanted to show himself a rigorous imitator of the Florentine manner. Though for Passeri, Moki's commitment to the Florentine manner was the key lens for bringing the sculptor's career into focus, 
the issue has played a surprisingly small role in previous art historical interpretations of his work. Passeri also reported that Moki was very devout, a claim which is supported by other evidence. Moki chose to dedicate his career to religious sculpture and portraiture, apparently shunning both the restoration of ancient sculpture and the production of mythological works, two of the most common assignments for sculptors in this period. Moki's formation, moreover, occurred at a time when new ideals for sacred art were making themselves strongly felt in art criticism and practice as part of the Catholic response to the Protestant Reformation's attacks on the use of religious art. The Tuscan sculptor Bartolomeo Amanati, who had been a protege of Michelangelo, but was deeply affected by the climate of religious reform in his later career, in 1582 published an open letter to the Florentine Artists' Academy in which he expressed remorse for his earlier sculptures of nude figures. In the letter, Amanati called for a new emphasis upon the importance of drapery and for a higher critical valuation of the sculptural skill required to make beautiful draperies, not just beautiful bodies. Quote, I know well that many of you realize that it is not less difficult or less of a real art to know how to make a beautiful drapery around a statue positioned and arranged with grace than to make it completely nude and uncovered. The claim is a polemical one aimed at the exceeding value Florentine artists and art writers from the early Renaissance had placed upon the body as the preeminent site for the exercise and display of artistic knowledge and virtuosity. The naturalistic representation of the body was understood as one of the central accomplishments of modern art and as a marker of the renewed connection of Renaissance art with antiquity. For Tuscan sculptors, whose frequent assignment was the creation of single figures, the body itself was their medium as much as the region's plentiful stone. The heightened concern for modesty in the later 16th century thus constituted a profound challenge to the Florentine artistic tradition and to Tuscan sculpture practice in particular, a practice identified above all with the distinctive visual language of the body created by Michelangelo. Passeri's biography thus signals two key coordinates for locating Moki's artistic practice. In my analysis, Moki's determination to carry forward a Florentine and Michelangelesque tradition of sculpture and to reconcile that tradition with new religious imperatives produced an extreme tension in his art that resulted in some of the century's most breathtaking sculptures though ultimately fracturing his career. Because Moki's sculptures render this tension unusually visible, I also realized that his works offered an ideal point of entry for an investigation into the historical and cultural forces reshaping sculpture at the beginning of the 17th century. It has long been standard to observe that sculpture's development lagged notably behind painting in the later 16th and early 17th centuries, offering nothing comparable to the revolutionary art of the Karachi or Caravaggio. The working explanation for this slower development has been that before Bernini, there was simply no sculptor of sufficient inspiration and ability to lead sculpture into the new era. 
But I would suggest that the different courses of sculpture and painting in the period arose from historical circumstances beyond the relative abilities of their practitioners. In the climate of religious reform and social change that characterized the later 16th century, painting and sculpture were subject to a variety of new pressures. Yet these pressures overlapped only in part. Sculpture faced challenges that were specific to the medium. Only by considering these challenges is it possible to understand sculpture's development in this period and its eventual transformation in the first half of the 17th century. Stefano Maderno's statue of the early Christian martyr Saint Cecilia in Santa Cecilia in Rome, completed in 1600, is sometimes identified as the first Baroque sculpture primarily due to what is seen as a new naturalism which broke with the preference for artifice in later 16th century sculpture. It would be better described as a statue whose unusual form demarcates the parameters of sculpture's shame in this era, a work that supplies no long-term remedies for sculpture's crisis, but offers an exceptionally clear diagnosis. The Saint Cecilia is the idol knocked down. The 90 degrees difference from the traditional orientation of sacred statues, marking Christian sculpture's difference from pagan antiquity and from its own contested recent past. Shifting perceptions of sculpture within the Catholic world in the later 16th century have gone largely unrecognized because crucial differences between the situations of painting and sculpture have remained submerged within a dominant art historical narrative written primarily from the perspective of painting. The same holds true for many of the relevant primary sources. Today I can only partially sketch one aspect of this shift. In contrast to painting, sculpture bore the burden of its close association with the idol, an association underscored by Protestant iconoclasts, but also acknowledged by Catholic writers. When the Florentine writer Raffaele Borghini reviewed the period debate over the relative merits of painting and sculpture in 1584, he listed the following as the final claim made by partisans of sculpture, quote, Figures in the round have greater affect, and because they are more like life, they move other souls more greatly, as did the figure of Pygmalion and the Venus of Praxiteles. And they add further that all the ancient idols spoke through statues and not through paintings." End quote. Yet within the Catholic defense of religious images, the different histories and affects of sculpture and painting were rarely acknowledged because the official Catholic position was the endorsement of both media as sister arts in the service of religion. In his 1582 Discourse on Sacred and Profane Images, Bishop Gabriele Pagliotti affirmed, quote, we have been brief, but the competent reader will have no difficulty in understanding just what our position is when it comes to the value and dignity of both painting and sculpture, end quote. Yet such statements, I contend, failed to diffuse a subterranean anxiety about sculpture's fragile theological status and its propensity for eliciting idolatrous responses. Religious sculpture in the round was largely absent in the West until the 9th and 10th centuries, 
and had never taken hold in the Byzantine East. The strongest evidence for Catholic concern about the status of sculpture is the transformation of the medium that occurred between the 16th and 17th centuries. This concern was only occasionally articulated overtly by Catholic writers and then by extremists. Their outbursts are nonetheless significant as registrations of the bedrock distinctions between sculpture and painting that lingered beneath long-established religious practices. In 1549, an anonymous Florentine diarist decried Baccio Bandinelli's nude statues of Adam and Eve for the high altar of Florence Cathedral, calling them, quote, filthy and sleazy. But tellingly, he also attacked Nanni di Baccio Bijo's copy of Michelangelo's St. Peter's Pietà, commissioned by a Rome-based Florentine banker for his funerary chapel in Santo Spirito in Florence. Unlike Michelangelo's controversial Last Judgment fresco for the Sistine Chapel, his early Pietà was never a focus of reforming criticism, and its traditional iconography could hardly be cited as an example of excessive nudity in Michelangelo's art. The diarist's ire was seemingly triggered by the medium itself, and his outrage was no doubt increased by the patron's plan to install the sculpture above the altar. I hope, he wrote, that one day God will send his saints to throw to the ground idolatries such as these. A century later, the perception was voiced again by Giovanni Domenico Ottonelli, a fanatical Jesuit reformer who in 1652 published a treatise on the use and abuse of painting and sculpture, which he wrote in Florence in the 1640s. In a discussion of the problem of lascivious images in churches, Ottonelli wrote that he was amazed that it was tolerated that in a principal church, there were two nude statues placed close to the most holy sacrament certainly a reference to Bandinelli's Adam and Eve. Before continuing his tirade, Ottonelli paused to note, quote, and besides, sculpture is a thing more harmful than painting in various respects. The patron of Moderna's Saint Cecilia, the committed reformer, Cardinal Paolo Emilio Sfondrato, sought to counter such claims with Moderna's sculpture which proposes another genealogy of the Christian statue, not from the idol, but from the saintly relic, which does seem to have played a crucial role in facilitating the earliest introduction of freestanding Christian sculpture in the West through the figurative reliquary. In an inscription in the pavement beneath the Saint Cecilia, Cardinal Sfondrato addresses the viewer, quote, behold the likeness of the most holy virgin Cecilia, which I saw myself lying intact in the tomb. This same likeness in precisely the same position of her body, I have portrayed for you in this marble." End quote. The rediscovery of the body of the martyr beneath the altar of the church in 1599 occasioned Svandrato's commission, and the statue's unusual format and installation as well as an accompanying publication by the scholar Antonio Bozio, which documented the events, constituted a carefully coordinated assertion of the Catholic statue's proper significance. 
Maderno's statue both figures the relic and is itself contained as one, displayed within a dark niche beneath the altar that recalls the catacomb bed from which the martyr's body was first recovered by Pope Paschal I in the ninth century. The arrangement legitimizes sculpture's insistent physicality by forcefully linking it to the tangible presence of the relic. As a young sculptor recently arrived in Rome, Moki witnessed this experiment in the reform of sacred sculpture. But he also surely realized that religious sculpture could hardly afford to take the challenges it faced lying down. In his Angel of the Annunciation, begun three years later, we can observe Moki seeking ways to reaffirm the artistic values of Michelangelo's sculpture while mediating them for his own time. The analogies with Alessandro Allori's Annunciation are revealing in this respect, for Allori was the last of a lineage of painters who sought to uphold a Florentine tradition that they associated in particular with the legacy of Michelangelo. In the left foot of his angel, Moki recalled the much imitated, gracefully perched left foot of Michelangelo's Libyan Sibyl from the Sistine ceiling, which Allori in turn had adapted for the Virgin in his Annunciation. But the virtuoso drapery of Moki's angel is the critical marker of the distance between Michelangelo's time and Moki's own. And it more, more than fulfills Amanati's plea for the recognition of drapery as a real art. Moki's draperies respond to the challenge Amanati articulated but never resolved. For the reconception of figural sculpture as fundamentally about the manipulation of draperies rather than bodies required a profound reorientation of sculptural practice in a direction for which there was little conceptual framework or art theoretical support. Throughout his career, Moki would experiment with innovative ways to expand the expressive potential of drapery, while preserving the importance given to the representation of the body in the Florentine tradition. In the angel, the whirling garments engage and even dominate the beholder's attention through their bold rhythmic arcs and astonishing technique. Yet the drapery's extreme extension into the surrounding air also entails its clinging to the body. And on the angel's proper left side, where Moki echoed the foot of the Libyan Sibyl, the closely wrapped garment offers an unimpeded view of the angel's body, from the arch of the lower back to the active muscles of the buttock and thigh. By the time Moki carved the angel's companion, the Virgin of the Annunciation, several years later, his thinking had developed further. He unconventionally portrayed the Virgin in a particularly active state of conturbatio, or disturbance, the first of the five distinct stages experienced by the Virgin during her brief exchange with the angel, as elaborated in 15th century sermons. According to the first chapter of the Gospel of St. Luke, when Mary heard the angel's salutation, rejoice, you who enjoy God's favor, the Lord is with you, she was deeply troubled and wondered to herself what this greeting could mean. The angel then reassured her, Mary, do not be afraid, you have won God's favor. Moki's virgin has leapt up abruptly from her chair and recoils away from the angel, drawing her mantle protectively over her left shoulder. 
Her right hand clings to the still teetering chair, around whose legs her garment has become badly tangled. Amplifying Mary's vigorous reaction to the angel is her athletic build, which directly recalls Michelangelo's Rachel from the tomb of Julius II in Rome, one of the very few clothed freestanding statues produced by Michelangelo in his maturity, and as such an important point of reference for defenders of his art in an era of reform. The Virgin also reveals the way that Moki, as he thought through the challenges facing sculpture at the turn of the 17th century, looked further back in the history of Florentine sculpture to the late medieval art of Giovanni Pisano and to a time when drapery still dominated the body. In this connection, one explanation for Moki's decision to represent his Virgin in such a strong state of disturbance emerges clearly. The vigor of her reaction to the angel's greeting supplies a pretext for the taut and tangled draperies which the sculptor mobilized as a site of artistic performance. The knife edge folds are carved with architectural crispness and run to staggering lengths, and as a vehicle for making visible the supernatural forces acting upon the Virgin's body. As the eye follows the Virgin's pull away from the angel, the gaze is led across and down and deposited at the epicenter of a fan-like pattern of rigid folds that traverse the Virgin's hips and womb and converge in a strong single fold which runs like a ray of light from below her heart straight down between her legs. The incarnation is occurring. Moki's unusual drapery accomplishes other aims as well. The fabric traces the contours of the Virgin's Michelangelesque body, but the hard edges of the fold seek to distance it from the beholder and to mitigate its potential sensuality. Moki's new sculptural language translated the bodily tension that animates Michelangelo's art into straining drapery folds, transposing the expressive force of Michelangelo's sculpture into a reformed key. Moki's virgin pleased the superintendents of Orvieto Cathedral, but it worried their bishop, who blocked the installation of the statue for several years, evidently due to concerns about its modesty. The episode highlights the difficulties the sculptor would face in seeking to reconcile Renaissance artistic values with the requirements of religious reform. In the time that remains today, I'd like to fast forward two decades to the decoration of the crossing of St. Peter's under Pope Urban VIII Barberini, the focus of the fourth chapter of my book. Deeply interested in the visual arts, Urban sought to foster a second renaissance in his pontificate, one that would renew the artistic accomplishments of antiquity and the high Renaissance, and yet be irreproachable from the standpoint of religious reform. The decoration of the liturgical center of the recently completed New St. Peter's was a priority for Urban when he ascended the papal throne in 1623. And by the next year, the 25-year-old Bernini was at work on the bronze baldachin for the high altar at the center of the crossing. 
Over the next few years, Urban and Bernini developed plans to adorn the niches of the crossing piers with colossal statues of saints associated with the basilica's most important relics. Bernini himself carved one of these, the Saint Longinus, and two others were carved at St. Peter's by sculptors working under Bernini's supervision. But Urban was a Florentine who shared Mochi's devotion to the Florentine tradition and had first patronized the sculptor 20 years before. Thus, when Mochi returned to Rome from Piacenza in 1629, the Pope entrusted him with the commission for the Saint Veronica, and he permitted the sculptor to design and carve the work independently in his own studio across the city. Because Bernini was in charge of the crossing decoration, and because of his tremendous impact on subsequent artistic developments, analyses of the crossing statues have long been shaped by the assumption that Bernini envisioned a unified style for the statues, embodied by his own Saint Longinus, which the other participating sculptors were either unable or unwilling to realize fully. Against this prevailing view, I argue instead that under Urban's sponsorship, the crossing of St. Peter's became a laboratory where a variety of possible solutions for the reform of religious sculpture were self-consciously explored and tested. The solution that emerged from the crossing, moreover, was certainly not envisioned at the outset of the project by either Urban or Bernini. Moki St. Veronica has been described in the art historical literature as a jarring disruption to the majesty of Bernini's vision for the crossing, and even as hysterical. As seen in this workshop drawing, which records Bernini's early planning for the piers, Veronica was traditionally portrayed statically, displaying her veil upon which the image of Christ miraculously appeared after she wiped his face on the way to the crucifixion. Moki's reconception of Veronica emerged from his reflection upon a revered motif in Florentine Renaissance art, the running maiden or nymph derived from the ancient Maynad the figure type that fascinated the late 19th century art historian Abby Warburg, who dubbed her the Nympha. With her dramatically flying draperies, the Nympha was far more easily rendered in painting or low relief, translating the running figure into three, three dimensions and colossal scale had never been attempted and required Moki to devise a new method of sculptural construction. As Moki himself explained in a letter, the Veronica is made from, quote, just three great blocks put together in a most difficult way in which the joins are never seen again. Archival documents in St. Peter's bear out this claim. The sculptor received three blocks, two that were close in height at about two and a half and two and a quarter meters, with respective weights of about 43,000 and 41,000 pounds. The height of the third block is given as just over a meter, but with a greater weight than the first two at 47,000 pounds. The document recording these measurements indicates that the first block was for the lower portion of the statue, while the second and third blocks were designated for the bust and the saint. When the blocks were delivered to Moki's home workshop, 
only one was set upright, presumably the block for the lower portion of the statue. The other two blocks were carved into complex forms that were then interlocked to form the entire upper portion of the St. Veronica, including the extended arms and the blowing veil. This assembly required a precise calculation of the forces exerted by the enormous weight of each of the upper blocks, a process closer to architectural construction than to the conventional and much simpler procedure of attaching smaller components onto the sides of a large primary block using metal pins. It is this novel construction that makes possible the dramatic forward lean of the Veronica, which breaks the boundary of the niche. In rethinking Veronica through the Nympha, Moki went to extraordinary lengths to try to bridge two worlds, the Florentine Renaissance and the reforming ideals of his own day. In the figure of the Nympha, the representation of the body and the fascination of the drapery are given equal attention. The sculptor's two primary vehicles of expression hovering in a balance as tantalizing and fleeting as the maenad herself. Moki's conception wagered upon the resonance of the nympha's varied roles in the Florentine artistic tradition. The nympha was praised as a site for virtuoso artistic display by Leonardo da Vinci and Leon Battista Alberti, and was brought to new heights by Sandro Botticelli. She was a symbol of the abundance and antiquity of Florence and her artistic culture, most famously in Donatello's now lost statue of wealth for the Mercato Vecchio. And she had been frequently adapted to the role of impassioned religious mourner, as in Bertoldo da Giovanni's crucifixion from the later 15th century and Jacopino del Conte's deposition for the Florentine oratory of San Giovanni Decolato in Rome from the mid-16th. The Veronica's athletic form also recalls Michelangelo's Leia from the Julius tomb, as do her unconventionally bare forearms and the insistent presence of the legs beneath the drapery. As with his Virgin Annunciate, Moki worked to chasten Michelangelo, this time deploying the patterns of folds found in 15th century painted renditions of the nympha to construct a physical and conceptual barrier around the Michelangelesque body. Urban VIII delighted in the Veronica, and a recently discovered document reveals, quite astonishingly, that the Pope ascended to the top of the Colossus in a mechanical hoist and was lowered slowly to admire at close range each section of the statue. When back on the ground, Urban declared with satisfaction that Moki had invented, quote, a whole new way of sculpting. Yet in 17th century Rome, these older Florentine associations of the nympha found limited purchase. In his mid-century treatise on sculpture practice, the Roman sculptor Orfeo Bozzelli devoted a chapter to blowing draperies, whose uses in sculpture he saw as confined to flying angels in relief sculpture and to ancient maenads, quote, who either because of their lascivious play or because of the drunkenness bestowed upon them by Bacchus moved violently and with little decorum, and thus the motion and the wind made their garments move even immodestly, end quote. Moki's conception was also idiosyncratic, 
no more offering a general solution to sculpture's challenges than Moderno's Saint Cecilia had done. But the strange and beautiful work renders peculiarly visible all that hung in the balance for sculpture at this moment, both the older artistic values that Moki was fighting to preserve and the new pressures upon the medium. Here we see the Renaissance conquest of the body through anatomy and proportion, combined with a new emphasis upon diverting drapery in deference to the ideal of Christian modesty. We see an effort to rationalize the movement of more activated drapery in accordance with earlier Renaissance ideals, a rationality which the rapid motion of the nympha observed and pushed to its limits. And finally, in Moki's hard and unyielding folds, we see his forceful affirmation of the Renaissance conception of sculpture, in which sculpture was understood to imitate the truth of what is, that is, the topography of three-dimensional forms in space, in contrast to painting, which creates only the deceptive illusion of three-dimensional forms in a two-dimensional medium. But the definitive solution to sculpture's dilemmas that took shape in the crossing project was not Moki's extraordinary balancing act, but Bernini's Baroque. While scholars have recognized the importance of the St. Longinus within Bernini's artistic development, and while Bernini's art has remained a touchstone for attempts to characterize the Baroque, these two very different levels of analysis have not been satisfactorily integrated and developed. What exactly changed in the St. Longinus and why? And what does this analysis at the level of the individual work tell us about the character of the Baroque, at least for the medium of sculpture? While Bernini's design process for the St. Longinus cannot be reconstructed fully, what was evidently an early idea for the statue is recorded in a fresco in the grotto chapel beneath the pier originally dedicated to Longinus, painted by a close collaborator of Bernini between 1630 and 31. The saint stands with his right foot upon his helmet, a portion of his cloak arranged over a raised, inward-leaning knee. He looks towards the center of the crossing and presses his hand, left hand to his chest in a gesture of reverent devotion. In key details and general sensibility, the figure is strongly reminiscent of Bernini's Saint Bibiana from a few years before. By September 1631, when Bernini had begun to work up his full-scale model, this idea had been abandoned. And Bernini's final statue represents the centurion, the Roman centurion, in an expansive pose at the moment of his conversion, when after piercing the side of the crucified Christ with his lance, he recognized Christ's divinity. An intermediate step in Bernini's thinking is recorded in a clay model in the Fogg Museum, one of only two known to us from of the 22 the painter and art writer Joachim von Sandra reported seeing in Bernini's studio. Between this model and the final statue, Bernini took some momentous steps. He decisively abandoned the drapery style of the earlier versions of the Longinus and of the Saint Bibiana, in which he still adhered to the dictates of rationalism. In the final solution, the Longinus is engulfed by a large, cloak -like, a long cloak-like mantle arranged in a forceful pattern of folds that no longer perform drapery's traditional work 
of explaining the body beneath, but have been wholly freed to function expressively. The animated drapery only nominally represents the centurion's garment. Instead, the folds figure in abstract terms Longinus's sudden experience of the divine. Along three main axes, long, nearly straight folds leap across his midsection, emanating out from an enormous knot at his left hip. Along his right side, the impossibly long edge of the mantle is convulsed and hovers in a jagged trajectory, moving in and out from the body twice before reaching the ground. The drapery defies gravity, signaling the presence of the supernatural. This much has been recognized, but it has not been sufficiently acknowledged how radical a break this made with the Renaissance past. Bernini's newly autonomous drapery is no longer subordinated to the body as Renaissance art theory and the example of ancient sculpture dictated, nor as in Mochi's Veronica acting in tension with it. Rather, it shatters the Renaissance language of the body. Not only is the body's visibility obscured, but its anatomy and proportions are subordinated to the optical and expressive effect of the work as a whole. Below the extraordinary mantle, only the saint's calves are visible. Above it, only the upper portion of the torso emerges from the drapery, which extends well up the rib cage. The body connecting these visible areas can be envisioned only with difficulty. The mantle's folds intentionally leave the location of the waist indeterminate. Whatever position one hypothetically assigns to it, the proportions of the body are revealed as impossibly long and narrow. The body has been reduced to a wiry support whose coherence is gestural rather than anatomical. Instead of the classical contrapposto stance, long favored for its clear demonstration of the mechanics of weight bearing, Bernini positioned both feet flat on the ground, the legs straight and tensed. The bend of the saint's left elbow is obscured by the wrapping mantle, whose upper folds reinforce a powerful diagonal running through the, from the straight right arm directly into the left forearm, sacrificing anatomical clarity in order to increase the visual charge of the expansive gesture. Over the naturalistic description of the body, Bernini prioritized the visual circuitry of his design, connecting the saint's tensed extremities to the electrifying spiritual energy emanating from the mantle. The radicality of Bernini's break with the Renaissance has been downplayed in Bernini scholarship, which has preferred to emphasize his undoubted knowledge of and reflection upon ancient and Renaissance models. And not without good reason, for Bernini's break with ancient and Renaissance artistic procedures was the foremost reason for the precipitous collapse of his reputation in the 18th century and the century's long denigration of his art, to which it is still not entirely immune. Yet this break is crucial for understanding Bernini's art and its relation to broader characterizations of the Baroque. The philosopher Walter Benjamin poetically described the language of the Baroque as, quote, constantly convulsed by rebellion on the parts of the elements which make it up. Christine Bussi Glucksmann, reflecting upon Benjamin, added, quote, a rebellion so radical that it breaks form 
fragments and shatters language as if dismembered by its own intensity, end quote. In the course of thinking through the St. Longinus, Bernini planned Drapery's complete rebellion, and he chose to fragment the body. In so doing, he established a Baroque stylistics for sculpture. To return to the question I raised at the beginning of this talk, how did Urban reconcile his urgent call for a renewed sacred art based upon the ideal models of antiquity and the Renaissance with his subsequent embrace and promotion of the style Bernini created in his Saint Longinus, which profoundly transgressed these very ideals? For that matter, how did Bernini himself understand the steps that he took, which broke in many respects with his own earlier works? The crossing project, it is clear, was a crucible for Bernini's thinking. In the course of planning three of the four peer statues, each of which takes a different approach to the problem of the religious statue, and having witnessed Moki's daring, if strained, attempt to reconcile Renaissance tradition with prevailing religious imperatives, Bernini concluded that the break with the past was necessary. Like many Bernini scholars, Bernini too did not wish to call attention to this break, which in my view is the explanation for the puzzling fact that after the appearance of Francois Duquesnoy's St. Andrew for the crossing had already been established, Bernini designed the Longinus in a pose that closely echoes the Andrew. In this way, Bernini set up an irresistible comparison between the two works, a comparison that sets into relief the visual power of Bernini's solution, while functioning to mask its radicality. With the St. Andrew as a point of reference, the pose of the St. Longinus appears readily legible, and its connection to older artistic values self-evident. When Bernini broke with the Renaissance language of the body, he also fundamentally altered the Renaissance understanding of sculpture by reconceiving freestanding sculpture's relation to painting. This finds expression in the striated pattern of chisel marks that covers all the surfaces of the St. Longinus. The marks have been correctly understood as an optical device intended to enhance the legibility of the colossal statue's forms from a distance by diffusing the distribution of light and shadow. To an unprecedented degree, Bernini was willing to sacrifice sculpture's integrity of form and surface for optical effect. At close range, moreover, the highly visible chisel marks function as a reminder that the statue is only an image hardly more substantial than a painting, with the marks of the chisel serving as analogs to painting's brushstrokes. This observation points towards what I would argue was a fundamental factor in the Catholic Church's embrace of Bernini's Baroque. In developing an approach that brought sacred sculpture closer to painting, Bernini worked subtly to ensure that Catholic sculpture fulfilled the ideal of the Christian image and to transform sculpture's troubling materiality, the bodily and material presence which linked it to the pagan idol. According to Bernini's early biographers, when the sculptor was criticized for making his draperies, quote, 
too folded and tormented, he responded that it was the drapery of his works that demonstrated his great skill in, quote, rendering marble pliable and knowing in a certain sense how to conjoin painting and sculpture. While this much-cited passage frames Bernini's accomplishment in terms of artistic skill, it also clearly presents his achievement as the subduing of marble sculpture's insistent material identity, and thus a true reform of sculpture. Between the Renaissance and the Baroque, everything about sculpture changed, but ultimately so that everything could remain the same. Within 17th century Catholicism, sculpture, in a radically new form, would flourish and proliferate. The crossing of St. Peter's and the colossal statues in particular have generally been viewed looking back through these later developments. From this perspective, scholars have imagined a fully formed Bernini who sought to impose a unified vision for Baroque sculpture, which the other participating sculptors to varying degrees struggled to fulfill. Instead, the crossing defined a turning point in the history of European sculpture. It was the place where Bernini became Bernini and where the Renaissance for sculpture definitively ended. Nothing could have been more stunning for Moki, who throughout his career had fought to preserve for sculpture the very things that Bernini chose to sacrifice in the St. Longinus. But from the hindsight of history, the innovative strategies for mobilizing drapery that Moki had pursued up to this moment would appear as only an abortive prelude to Bernini's mature drapery style. This retrospective view overlooks the commitment to the Florentine manner that was the wellspring of Moki's art and elides the very real differences in the ways in which Moki and Bernini activated drapery, even as they confronted common challenges. In the decade or so that remained to him, Moki worked on several highly experimental projects in which he continued to grapple with the dilemmas of sacred sculpture and the fate of the Florentine tradition, those later commissions that would be so defining for Wittkover's account of Moki. The final chapter of my book offers a new chronology and very different interpretations of these works, but that is a story for another day. I will be at the book table just outside the entrance to the auditorium, so don't be shy about coming over with any questions that you have. Thank you. This has been a National Gallery of Art podcast.